This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Wargent. We're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. This week, I'm joined by Peter Tulip, who's the Chief Economist at the Centre for Independent Studies. Peter, welcome and thank you for coming on. Hi, Pete. Glad to be here. So I'll just run through a very brief bio for people who aren't familiar. So Peter previously worked in the research departments at the Reserve Bank of Australia and before that at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And he's written several research papers in particular that point to planning restrictions as the reason for housing in Australia being relatively expensive. And his work has been prominently cited in reports on housing policy uh, by the Productivity Commission and others. And um, Peter, I know you're known for your forthright views on the economy and on housing. So I'm keen to get straight into the discussion and uh, not waste too much time. So um, let's start right at the top then. So you've argued previously that the reason housing in Australia is expensive is largely because of planning restrictions. So um, can you give us an overview of that? How did we get here? What are the main challenges and what have the impacts uh, been of our uh, zoning restrictions and zoning laws? Right, so hi, Pete, glad to be here. Um, I'm a fan of the series. Uh, I listen often. Oh, that's good the, to hear. Well, definitely, uh, we'll have to use you in the uh, in the show notes as a testimonial. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so the problem with housing in Australia is that ha- the demand for housing steadily increases due to growing population, growing incomes, demographic factors, and so on. Um, but the supply does not keep up. Um, supply just every year grows a little bit slower. And so because of that, we've got a growing excess demand for housing, most acutely in our big cities. So, for example, in Sydney, it costs, sorry, a new apartment sells for about a million dollars, but that can be provided. Um, The cost of supply is about $600,000. So there's a gap of $400,000, an extra profit, that builders would make if they were allowed to supply an extra apartment. And the reason they don't do that, they can't do that, is because it's illegal. That our zoning restrictions put height limits on apartment buildings, most clearly in this example, but a whole range of restrictions apply to other kinds of buildings um, on use, on setbacks, on um, the the kind of building it is, floor area ratios, also there are all sorts of restrictions. And like with any market, when you restrict the supply, the price goes up. So, and that has all sorts of terrible consequences for society that you know, commute times are an hour longer than they need to be. We've got widespread homelessness. Um, you know, I have 20 something sons that still live at home. Um, good for their parents, bad for them. Um, but all, all through society there, it just, it just reshapes a lot of the way we live. People don't live and work where they're most productive. And we could solve these problems by relaxing zoning restrictions just by allowing more building. But anyway, that, that's an overview and we can get into the details. Well, it's a good starting point. So when you say the supply is slower, do you mean in in terms of the number of new dwellings that are built, or do you mean there's a percentage increase in the dwelling stock? Because I'm thinking back to around uh, a dozen years ago or maybe a decade ago when, in particular, um, in Brisbane, uh, where I'm based in southeast Queensland, but to some degree as well, Sydney and Melbourne, there were 
apartments going up all over the place and probably yeah, I suppose in aggregates anyway, faster than we'd seen before. So do you, when you say the supply is slow to respond, do you mean on a percentage basis or in terms of the absolute number of dwellings? Um, the stock is too low and that's because the flow has been restricted over a very long period of time. Now, it will often be the case at every cyclical peak that we're building a lot of houses but on average, the dwelling stock in Australia grows about 2%, has been growing about 2% a year, whereas the demand has been higher than that, maybe 3% a year. And that margin is just widening the gap between demand and supply. So when we say there's a shortage of housing, we really mean it's the stock of housing that's too small, even though sometimes construction levels are high, sometimes they're low. On average, they they have been insufficient. So I um, used to write um, around, I guess, 2011, 2012 for a publication that isn't so active anymore, Property Observer. But I remember around about that time, there's a lot of debate about um, the housing approvals process being very constipated, too slow. And it was the main reason we had um, issues with prices. But then when interest rates fell, we saw a phenomenal construction boom. Um, and by 2016, the debate had shifted completely. I remember uh, a fund manager, Roger Montgomery, saying we had a bigger oversupply than the US. We had 18 months worth of apartment overhang. And um, generally, there was a lot of debate about there just being too much housing, we're going to see a collapse. It's just like Ireland. It's like the US in 2007 and so on. Um, so that to me suggests that it's not just housing approvals that are slowing down the supply. Um, certainly in that case, it was really, um, we just got to a point where, um, well, there was there was too much. In, it's, but is that partly because it's just the type of stock that was getting built? It's just too much high no, rise no, no, supply? No, or? so there will be periods of time when supply grows faster than demand. And when that happens, we tend to see rents growing slower than other prices. And I think you're right, around 2016, 2017 was a peak like that. And, and so rents did fall in real terms in several Australian cities. And if we could maintain that for a very long period of time, the housing shortage would be over. We need to maintain those peak levels, which, okay, there's, you can say, when we talk about a shortage, that means different things in different contexts. And you can have an excess supply of the flow, which means rents are declining. You need to sustain that for a very long time to remove the, ex the excess demand for the stock that we need to reduce prices by something like 20, 30% or more um, to make housing affordable and to bring prices down into line with costs. So just um, listening to some of the, the language you've used there, so um, the supply not keeping up with demand and the demand itself being partly driven by um, the growth in the population. Now, obviously, uh, being a migrant myself, I came to Australia in the 1990s, but haven't lost my accent much. So um, obviously I'm pro immigration but I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening to that would say well if that's the case why not just cut immigration why not have a cap on immigration of say 50,000 per annum until supply and demand are back in balance at least um is there an argument to say immigration should be capped or reduced alongside supply reform or is there a disadvantage to keeping a cap on immigration so immigration is a separate issue i mean that some people don't mind living near foreigners, other people do. Um, there are different values and we have a demographic, democratic process for reconciling these different values in society and it ends up with an immigration number. My view is whatever that immigration number is, we should provide housing for it and we're not doing that. Even if immigration were to stop tomorrow, we would still have a housing shortage. They're, so they're separate issues. And I have views on immigration. Well, everyone has their own views on immigration. But I 
really prefer, I mean, not to debate them because it's a separate question. I mean, just whatever the immigration level is, let's provide shelter for them. And we're not, and we're failing to do that. I think there's a fair argument to say that um, the rate of migration would, to some degree, be um, self-correcting. I suppose if there's work and um, it's an attractive time to come to the country, then you're obviously going to have higher periods of immigration. And maybe as there's a slowdown or a downturn, then it, it could be slower. Um, so, so, so that's very clearly the play. The case at a regional level, at a city level, you know. So if there's, I mean, a, a few years ago there was huge demand for workers in Western Australia, for example, and so the population of Western Australia grew very, very rapidly with internal migration. And I mean, foreign migration is a lot more complicated because just the lags of getting a visa and moving, um, and you know, uprooting a whole life to set established life in a new country is involves lots of other considerations i mean you actually do see it very clearly in terms of trans trans tasman migration where people move between australia and new zealand um in a way that seems to be very sensitive to different labor market conditions in the two countries i mean often we're synchronized um but on the occasion where we have a boom and new zealand has a slump a lot of people move across the Tasman here and, and vice versa. I remember with the uh, Christchurch rebuild um, that it became relatively more attractive for people to go and work in construction in New Zealand versus Australia. And we, on a net basis anyway, we saw the flows shift in that direction quite significantly. Um, I think um, in terms of how this might work in practice then, so I think uh, certainly in a city like Brisbane, we've got used to the idea of um, areas like uh, Fortitude Valley, or the inner city suburbs like uh, South Brisbane, or, or even the CBD uh, being flooded with high-rise apartments. But um, I live in uh, Noosa, which is not renowned for its um, uh, sort of uh, ability to supply housing. And there's a lot of pushback from uh, NIMBYs, of course, um, especially where I live at Noosa Springs, because the average demographic is older. Um, but how would this work in practice? Would, the, would zoning... Um, uh, easier zoning restrictions apply everywhere because I'm sure what people in Noosa would say is, well, that's fine, but it, um, we can absorb some more housing, but um, we've uh, paid to buy property in a low-density zoned area, and if we're going to take more supply, um, should uh, Wolseley Road in Point Piper have medium-density zoning? Would it apply across the board or would it just be in certain hubs or how would you, how would you perceive it working? So there's... Widespread agreement amongst economists and people that have, and researchers and people who have looked closely at the housing issue that we need more housing. There's disagreements on how to achieve that. Um, the, and different people have different strategies and tactics. My own preference is for the state government to set targets for local councils and then the, lo and then the local council can decide the kind of housing that most suits the target. If you have, um, and so for example, in regional areas such as Noosa, or, I mean, your regional towns, there the housing is most appropriately provided by um, detached housing, just expand the boundaries of the town into agricultural land. In contrast to the center of Sydney, I mean, you mentioned Point Piper, there you're going to do high-rises. Um, and if you've got a train station, that's an obvious place to put it. Those, um, but, you know, but not every suburb has a train station. Um, so anyway, so conditions will differ. And my sense is you can leave it up to local councils to decide what kind of housing most suits the neighbourhood. But they do need to build more. The... And that's where the state government has a big interest. And so the state government should set ambitious targets for local councils. And, and I've just recently done a paper saying how those targets might be calculated, which I'm happy to talk about that if you want. 
So um, that um, that sounds like a so it's a more of a nuanced um, a proposal, I suppose. Because I, I guess just like the debate yeah. on immigration, it's not an all or nothing question, and the right number in inverted commas is probably somewhere between zero and one million, and everyone might have their own views. So in terms of housing supply, um, it would no, come it, down to the local level to some degree. Well, the I think how they do it can be a local decision, but the quant the so the kind of housing should be left to local councils, but the quantity should be decided by the state government. And in particular, state government should set high targets for the areas where there's most excess demand for housing, which in Sydney, where I come from, tends to be around the inner and eastern suburbs where the housing is most overpriced. So, and so I call for targets of about, I mean, I think we need about an extra 80,000 apartments in those inner and eastern suburbs. Um, and then you need more housing also for, for population growth, and that can be shared evenly around. And then you also want to do um, more detached. And sorry, what I was talking about there is all infill, all apartments, but you also want to keep building detached houses, most clearly in areas where land is cheap. Um, and that's a separate calculation. Those uh, beachside suburbs have always been low on the supply side, I guess, because of the three-storey height limits. But I think, as you mentioned there, there's, there's certain places where... Not not just the height limits. It's, I mean, the, the uh, availability of land for residential purposes is strictly limited. Mm. The, a lot of coastal towns, okay, so the ones I know best are in New South Wales, but it would surprise me if this isn't the case also in Queensland. Um, once you drive just a few kilometres inland, you've got land that's zoned ag for agricultural purposes, which is just in incredibly cheap, a few dollars a, a hectare, whereas you cross the line on the map that says, okay, now the land is residential, and suddenly you're paying three, four $400,000 for a, for a 1,000-square-metre block. And the so there's no shortage of land. It's just a shortage of permission to build. Yes, and the, the, those challenges in Sydney have been talked about for a very long time. You mentioned um, New Zealand just before, and uh, we've got something of a live experiment going on over there. Auckland has been in the news a lot um, recently in terms of its upzoning uh, reforms, uh, which... It's uh, a first look anyway, seems to have increased the level of approvals over there. Do, do you have any insights into what Auckland has done, what it's done well and what the possible impacts might be? Yeah, that's a really important example and a really important question. So back in 2016, Auckland essentially mandated medium density housing through about two thirds of the city. Um, and so there's been a big transformation of detached housing being turned into townhouses. And so the construction industry in Auckland has approximately doubled. And there have been um, research papers looking into this, and, and they estimate that the housing stock in Auckland has increased about 5% with all of these new townhouses. And that in turn has reduced the rent in Auckland relative to other New Zealand cities by about 20 to 30%. So there's always a big question when we do these re when we do this research what would have happened otherwise what a lot of the um, New Zealand researchers are doing is well we can take Wellington and Dunedin and you know, other New Zealand cities as something like a counterfactual that's that maybe represents what would have happened otherwise. And in other New Zealand cities, rents have been increasing very, very quickly in far faster than the rate of inflation. In Auckland, they've been flat, in fact, falling in real terms with a widening margin, which is now yes, something like about 20%. So Aucklanders now pay about 20% less rent than they would have if rents had increased at the rate that they have in other New Zealand cities. You kind of uh, preempted my next question. So uh, Dr. Tim Helm, who's 
um, a freelance economic consultant, and I think currently director of research and policy at the think tank Prosper Australia. He's uh, sort of argued if, if you drag the, the figures back to uh, around a dozen years ago, it's hard to sort of pick any difference in terms of uh, the number of um, consents or the increase in the number of consents between uh, cities like Auckland and Wellington and some of the others. Um, and I suppose the, the, as you said, it's very hard to prove a, a counterfactual, but um, thinking back to Australia's um, construction boom uh, around a decade ago, which was largely apartments and largely Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane focused um, as, a, as distinct from the recent home builder uh, boom, which was more sort of detached housing around the country. Um, the, now, um, how do we know that the New Zealand circumstance is not just a cyclical upswing like we saw in Australia? Um, and how how will we judge the, the impacts? Or is, do we just have to wait and see to some degree? So I think the way you judge is, and you can never be certain about these things, but you need some credible estimate of what would have happened otherwise. And economists have a wide range of doing that. Um, you can do it statistically. The New Zealand example is nice and clear because there are obvious counterfactuals you can use. For example, I mentioned before in Auckland, the upzoning there has been for about two thirds of the city has been upzoned, and the other third um, was not um, had no change. So there's a clear comparison group. You've got a control and a treatment, and you can just compare what's happened to construction in the areas that are affected by the lead, by the zoning reforms to areas that were not, and that's where they get these big estimates of the effect on construction. What would you say to people who just would argue that allowing people to build more supply um, can just damage the character of an area? I know that's a hard thing to measure. I suppose you could cite house price changes as a proxy, but doesn't just building apartments everywhere make cities less attractive or less livable? I know certainly I've had people visit um, Sydney where I lived in Sydney and they, people have said from overseas, well, you, this is uh, Sydney's been ruined because there's too much traffic, too many apartments, too many people. Um, what do you think about that? Or do you think we can absorb, and that's more of an infrastructure question? Sure. No, I think that's a legitimate argument. I mean, there, there is, um, there's an issue of values on which reasonable people just need to agree to disagree, that some people like the bucolic charm of Noosa Heads, others like living in a big city. Um, uh, you know, just people people will differ on that. Um, the I would say that the I, I, I think the people who think that high-rise development in their suburb is going to ruin the character of the neighbourhood, those views are unrepresentative and have not been borne out in practice. And you can tell that by what happens to property values in suburbs where there has been very substantial development. So we, I did a paper on this with Zach Lanigan a few years ago, um, and we looked at... I mean, what was it, about half a dozen suburbs in Sydney, like Chatswood or Green Square or Harold Park, and several suburbs in um, Melbourne, like Box Hill, for example, and compared what happens to property values in the neighbourhood once you put up a whole bunch of high-rises. And we found that, in, in fact, that they don't change much at all, particularly relative to adjacent suburbs. Um, and so while it's and, – and essentially the interpretation we take from that is that the amenity of living in that suburb was unchanged by the development. Now, we know that some people didn't like it and they probably moved out, whereas other people do like it. And in particular – okay, lots of people don't think tall buildings are ugly – but what they really do like is all the new shops and restaurants and the new bus service that accompany the extra density. And those features tend offset whatever reduction you get from the extra traffic congestion. 
If the house prices didn't change that much, isn't that an argument, though, that the extra supply hasn't made any difference? Or are you thinking that this would have an impact over time? So the response of um, prices to an increase in quantity will vary a lot depending on, um, uh, in economic terms, the level of aggregation. That if you double the housing in in one suburb, it's still going to be almost identical. The quality, the amenity of living in the suburb will still be almost identical to the adjoining suburb, for example. Um, and so it has very little effect on um, the metropolitan area housing stock, just one suburb's housing development, and so and people move. So it has a big... Another way of putting this is that people will, if you create a lot of housing, people will move in from other areas. And so that greatly dampens the price effect. But if you do it at a city level or a national level, you don't get that dampening effect. I mean, in sorry for being technical, but in economic terms, the elasticity of demand is going to be virtually flat at a local level, but very steep at a national level. That does make sense. And I think to some degree that was borne out actually in the construction boom that we did have. Uh, certainly for apartment prices, very flat in Brisbane and Melbourne for quite a long period of time, maybe less so in Sydney's eastern suburbs where the supply is constrained. So I guess that kind of underscores what you've argued there. Um, you mentioned the response of prices. Now, you've um, you've been involved in um, housing market modelling, um, did a, um, a model or and a paper with uh, Trent Saunders uh, previously at the Reserve Bank. Um, I think sometimes um, models have come uh, under fire from various quarters because um, I guess, well, particularly in a period where we've seen a shock um, and uh, sort of a black swan event that renders some of the previous um, inputs maybe flawed. Um, how do, um, tell us about how housing market modelling works and how do you deal with things like um, shocks or do you just present yeah. maybe a confidence interval or something? Um, no. Uh, so... Trent and I estimated that for every 1% increase in the housing stock, prices will fall about 2.5%. Um, that's, in technical terms, that's an estimate of the elasticity of demand for housing at a national level. And we did that based on past empirical relationships between quantities and prices and other variables that we know affect the housing market in Australia over the past few decades. And we did that analysis, I think, in 20... I think we published in 2019. Um, and then one year later, we got the pandemic. And that just had a huge effect on you know, everything in Australia. It stopped, and in particular in the housing market, it stopped immigration. It meant... Everyone started working from home. Um, people didn't want to live in the cities anymore. There was no longer any reason to live near work. People moved out to places like Noosa. Um, so all sorts of other... Anyhow, essentially, our model is just uninformative about the effects of something like the pandemic. It was just outside our sample range, um, and we had no real guidance to provide as to what the effect of the pandemic would be. Um, but uh, now that's got, that effect is disappearing now and, and people are acclimatising it. Um, and the big thing that is going on is rising interest rates. Well, rising interest rates is something we do have a lot of experience with. And so we, Trent and I have estimates that change in interest rates have very big effects on house prices. And that's what we have been seeing lately. I mean, so that when interest rates fell, prices soared, and now we're, and now we're seeing the exact opposite of that, all of which has happened after we did our estimation. So um, to summarise, I think, the answer to your question is that econometric models, such as what Trent and I estimated, are uh, 
a useful way of telling you what will happen when the changes that the housing market is responding to are similar to things that have happened in the past. And essentially, we're just estimating what the average effect is in the past when you allow for everything going on. And what they're not good at is predicting events that are outside your sample, like the pandemic. I can see from the the inputs to the model, the interest rates and rents, and in particular, the momentum there can have a very significant effect on housing prices. I remember, um, I can't exactly think of the timeline here, but not so long ago when the cash rate target was being lifted from the zero lower bound, there's a bit of media reporting about whether a 1% increase in interest rates would see housing prices fall 26%. I think it was, I think relatively quickly explained there that um, the reason that wasn't the case is because you're really talking about changes in real interest rates rather than the nominal. But I guess fast forward to today, and we've got a cash rate target of near a 4%. So shouldn't we be expecting to see more significant price declines given the significant changes in interest rates? Because um, at the moment, we've got in some cities, prices appear to be rising. Or is that still because the real interest rate, i.e. after inflation, is still low? Uh, there are... No, you're right. So, in fact, Trent and my um, research was on the front page of the newspapers um, when the cash rate started coming up in terms of its anticipated effect on prices. One of the things, the really big effects we estimate are for real long-term interest rates, which is essentially set in the world capital markets. And that's really important for explaining the big trend reduction in mortgage rates that homebuyers have faced over the past few decades. So, you know, so we, you go back to the 1980s and mortgage rates were up around 8, 8% or more in real terms. And that decline to you know, just a few percent a few years ago ex- explained Trent and I said, explained a lot of the long-term run-up in house prices. Changes in monetary policy have very quick but smaller effects. As we speak, the Reserve Bank is probably announcing its decision um, today and, and people are expecting them to go up maybe a quarter of a percentage point. But that's not going to have much effect on real long-term rates at all, because if they don't do it this month, then they would probably do it a month or two later. Um, and so the, the long-run path of real interest rates isn't very affected by mortgage rates, so that has a much smaller effect on house prices. I think, um, there's possibly an argument to say as well, um, you mentioned there was, there was a very unusual situation where people moved outwards during the pandemic, so maybe the the low interest rates weren't fully capitalised into the, the inner city markets and kind of now we're seeing the reverse of that, people moving back into the cities to some degree. I think um, these are obviously some of the challenges when you've got a um, housing market model. It's very hard to account for things like changes in taxes or um, when we saw macro prudential policies, things like first homeowners grants and, and so on. Just on that point, um, your view seems to suggest that things like negative gearing, capital gains tax discount in Australia don't make a huge difference in terms of pricing. Um, do, do, do you think there should be a reform there or is it um, not big enough to move the needle? There are arguments for changing negative gearing and stronger arguments for changing the capital gains di- discount on tax policy term grounds. The issue is often raised in the context of housing affordability and and that's silly because it just doesn't affect housing affordability much at all. There have been a number of different estimates of the effect of um, the tax concessions on housing prices by very good researchers using a range of different approaches, and they all find that the effect is tiny. So some of them estimate it's 1%, some of them estimate 4%, the others are somewhere in between those. I mean, yeah, it's it's rounding error. 
um, that it's yeah fine to talk about these tax concessions maybe from an equity perspective or from an efficiency perspective, but in terms of housing affordability, they're just not relevant. I think there's always an argument about whether or not rents would go up and uh, that seems to go round and round in circles. Um, yes. So maybe leave that one for another day. Um, you mentioned there the, uh, the monetary policy decision, which I guess has just been taken in the last few minutes as we speak. Um, uh, this central bank review has been very much in the news uh, recently, maybe a subject for another day because that would probably take um, longer than we have. Um, but just as a final, um, I suppose, question, thinking back to the global financial crisis, it's kind of um, led policymakers to have a rethink on um, financial stability risks, asset prices, and how that should impact monetary policy. In other words, should central banks respond to increases in housing prices or debt levels by raising interest rates more than would otherwise be justified. Or in Australia's case, I guess we we had inflation under target for a long period of time, I guess around half a decade, and um, a lot of patience being shown in terms of the monetary policy setting. Um, so I guess my final question or questions, um, I mean, this seems to imply that central banks can basically assess market risks better than the private agents in the market. Um, do you think central banks should lean against asset prices or lean against the wind? And if not, um, does that imply we need to tighten faster now, given what's happened to inflation? I think it is wrong for central banks to use monetary policy to um, target asset prices the way the Reserve Bank did prior to the pandemic. I think that was a mistake. That it is clearly a concern of the central bank when asset prices fall substantially, as they did in the GFC, and nobody wants a repetition of the GFC. The problem is, is that monetary policy is a very bad instrument for dealing with financial stability. While it might reduce, while, while high interest rates will reduce debt, they have an even bigger effect on the capacity to pay that debt. And so the unemployment you create is a bigger worry than in fact the borrowing was. In contrast, um, central banks or other financial regulators and the institutions vary from country to country, have much better instruments for dealing with financial stability in the form of prudential controls. That one of the big problems with monetary policy is that it stops all borrowing you don't, and, and creates a lot of unemployment. You don't need to do that. You don't want to do that. You just want to stop the risky borrowing. And so rather than the blunt instrument of interest rates stopping everything, just put, you can tighten your loan-to-value ratios. Or even better, you can just make sure that banks are financing the risky borrowing with, with equity rather than with debt. And so if you increase bank capital requirements, that's a way of inoculating you against financial instability of the sort we saw in the GFC without creating the substantial unemployment that the Reserve Bank created prior to the pandemic. It's a much more cost-effective targeted instrument. Yes, we're about on time, but you've just, um, I can't resist asking this extra question on macro prudential measures. So uh, back in, um, uh, well, it's, it's over a year ago now, the, the prudential regulator in Australia introduced a three percentage points lending assessment buffer. So this obviously has a direct impact on the housing market. Um, the stress test essentially is the widest we've ever seen. Uh, now, it looks like that's going to persist, but um, is there an argument to say, in your view, that that should just go back to a normal um, stress test? Bank of England did it months and months ago, but in Australia, we've still got a a, um, a three percentage points lending assessment buffer, which is obviously slowing um, to some degree new supply. Um, do you think that's something that should be looked at or is that just um, oh, uh, an appropriate be, buffer? 
It should be scrapped. It's a stupid policy that is very badly applied and hasn't been thought through. To take them, the clearest problem with it, they applied exactly the same buffer to fixed rate loans as to variable rate loans. Now, this is a buffer to make sure that borrowers have a cushion in case interest rates rise. Why apply that to someone who has a fixed rate loan? Particularly, I mean, especially if they're fixing for, say, five years' time. I mean, it doesn't make sense. The other big pro- I mean, okay, there are lots of other problems with it. Yes, it should be tied to the yield curve. You want a bigger buffer when interest rates are likely to rise than you do when interest rates are likely to drop. I think that's obvious. Um, but the other, another, well, yet another big problem with it is that the risks that it's guarding against are those of an individual borrower. They're not systemic risks of the sort that APRA really should be worrying about. And if one individual borrower gets into trouble with their loan, that's an issue, that should be an issue for the borrower and the lender to sort out. There's no wider public interest in those sort of questions. There's, the stability of the financial system is not at stake. So for a large number of reasons, I think this is a silly policy. I suppose there's other questions as well about um, the mortgage rates charged on investment loans and interest only. But um, but we could talk all day on that, I suppose. But I think we're relatively well aligned on um, where things are sitting from a lending policy perspective. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for coming on. There's so much more we could talk about. Um, if people want to find out a little bit more um, social media, you're relatively active on Twitter, but where else can people go if they want to find out some more on your research? So if people want copies of my publications, I, I've got one here. I mean, there are a whole bunch of publications I've done, papers I've done for the CIS. If you just Google my name and go to or, or Google the, the CIS, um, it should be fairly easy to find my paper, my recent research papers there. Thank you very much. And uh, final um, question before we let you go. Did people ever sort of mention your surname when you were working in <laughs> policy? I, I saw it pop up on social media a few years ago, famous references to tulip mania. You must have heard that joke before. Um, particularly when I, yeah, uh, some of my early work was on bubbles. Um, <laughs> tulips were a famous example. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you've only heard that a thousand times before in uh, I, I, the Australian. I, 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 yeah. I had more than my fair share of names <laughs> when I was at school. Okay, thank you so much. And if you've got any questions for Peter or for me, just um, drop us a question. We'll put a link in the show notes for you. Um, Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next episode. Cheers. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax, or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Before you go, I wanted to share some things with you. Specifically, I wanted to tell you about the 10 ways that RASC could help you in 2024. As many of you know, RASC has grown to become one of the biggest investing and finance platforms in Australia. Across our podcasts, our websites, our memberships, and so on, we now engage around 200,000 Aussies, which considering we started in a humble lounge room on a Kmart desk, one of those old fake white wooden ones, I'm pretty ecstatic about where we are six years later. As part of becoming one of Australia's biggest platforms for wealth creation and preservation, we now have a very special position in the country in that we can bring you some of the best, most thoughtful, expert-driven ways to protect and grow your wealth. And I'm going to share some of those with you now. I've got 10 ways that we can potentially help you or match you 
with someone who can. The first thing that I want to tell you about is the biggest step we've ever taken at Rask, which is the launch of our Rask Invest platform. This is a platform that lets our team, led by me, invest for you, primarily through low-cost, diversified ETFs. We'll have three strategies at launch, and every investor who comes through can pick one of the three strategies being a balanced strategy, a growth strategy, and a high-growth strategy. The balanced strategy focuses on passive income, and the high-growth strategy focuses on longer-term compounding. You will find a link in your podcast player to register your interest. We will be taking off soon. Number two, if you prefer to DIY your investing, you can join me and over 4,000 members inside Rascore. That's our full ETF and ASX share research membership community. You can join now and you'll get updated ETF portfolio recommendations every quarter, as well as ongoing ASX and global stock research. Every single month, we call them the all-star stocks. You get that alongside the ETF portfolios, as well as other members-only content. It's called Rascore. Number three, our first ever partnership with a business other than our own was a business by the name of Blusk, which has since become Flint Group. Flint Group is led by Chris Bates and Christian Stevens, two of Australia's most highly regarded mortgage brokers. Already over 200 RASC community members have begun the RASC plus Flint Group mortgage broking process. You can click the link in your podcast player if you're refinancing, investing, a first home buyer, or whatever. You've probably heard Chris on the show many times. Number four, you can connect with our most trusted financial advisors. Whether you're 25 years old, just graduated uni and looking to set yourself up or approaching or in retirement and you've got that nest egg you want to protect and generate a passive income from, you can get in contact with our trusted panel of financial advisors. You can find the link in your podcast player. It's there each and every week. Just click the thing that says financial planning. Number five, if you want specialist insurance advice, as Warren Buffett said, rule number one is don't lose money. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one. Insurance is vitally important, especially when it comes to your number one asset, you. Whether you're a single income household or a couple and you just want to protect what would happen if. You want to protect your family if something goes wrong. You want to protect your spouse if you lose your job. You want to protect yourself if you hurt yourself on the weekend at footy. Insurance is a way to do that. And I think the best way to do insurance is through a financial planner. And there's a few reasons for that. But one of them is sometimes some insurers will only work with financial advisors, but they can also be your companion as you go through the sometimes daunting process of getting insurance done properly. Sometimes you might not even know, but you're not even covered, even though you think you are. So get the right advice. You'll find a link in the show notes to check that out. Number six, buying property. If you're like me and you're thinking of buying property in the next 12 months, or maybe you've already invested and you're looking to downsize, getting the right advice and being able to build wealth through property is a proven strategy. It might be one of the most contentious, but I think that we have one of Australia's best property coaches in our ranks. That is Pete Wargent. Pete is the host of the now super popular Australian property podcast by Rask, and he's also my analyst team's macro consultant. So if you're a member of Rascor, you will have seen Pete's name around the traps. He's a property coach and buyer's agent, and he works with a select number of people each and every year. Just a note on this. This is not a commercial thing with Pete. Pete just has great services, so we offer them to the community. And when he fills up, he fills up. You can find out more about Pete's coaching in the show notes. Next up, tracking your portfolio for tax. I think you are because I think you have to. So we've partnered with Nevexa to help you manage your share and ETF reporting, whether it's tax or performance. All RASC users get 20% off an annual plan with Nevexa. You can sync your portfolio with Nevexa's software and it automatically tracks your dividends, your capital gains tax, and more. Again, not a commercial partnership. We don't make anything from working with Nevexa, but they do create some great tools which the RASC community uses each and every day. Number eight, want to run your own business? Maybe you already do. If you want more profit, but less stress, less time consumed, and less energy lost, 
get in contact. We have a partner business called Inflection. The Inflection Accelerator Program is a complete online course that helps you and a community of members engage and follow a proven strategy for growing your business. I'm grateful to be one of the coaches inside the Accelerator Program, helping business owners right across Australia. You can find more following the link in your podcast player. It's the one that says coaching. Number nine, if you haven't already checked it out, join over 20,000 other people who tune into the Rask YouTube channel. It is completely free and you get notified when we go live and when we publish podcast episodes. There is a podcast on the Rask network each and every day, as well as bite-sized material that's less than 60 seconds or those really punchy tutorials and webinars that are just 15 minutes that take you through a really exciting topic, whether it's how to buy a property, whether it's how to pick a dividend ETF. Some of our most popular content actually just explains things like, what the heck is franking credits and how do I calculate if I've got some? That's on our YouTube channel. Number 10, if you want to be a better investor, a saver, a better partner with money, or just understand your own relationship with money, you can do that all of that by going to the Rask Education website and taking a free course. We've enrolled over 26,000 students at the time of this recording, and we're on a mission to get to 100,000 in the next few years. Rask Education is our mostly free education platform covering everything from budgeting and automation to the probably, I would say, the best value investing program in the country. So whether you're a value investor an intermediate investor, you want to know how to value Woolworth shares, or you simply just want to understand what ethical investing is or buy your first property and what actually happens on settlement day, head to the Rask Education website and enroll in something today. It is free and it supports us because then I can come on here next month and I can say we've got 27,000 and hopefully we reach critical mass where we can help more Australians manage their money better. Thank you for listening to this long-winded ad If you want to get in contact with me, you know where to go. There's a link in your show notes. Basically, these 10 services, even though some of them we don't make any money from, support Rask and allow us to produce these podcasts, attract the biggest and best guests from Australia and around the world, and bring them to you to answer your questions. Thank you for being part of the Rask Network, and thank you for your ongoing support. Bye for now.